Thanks. I'm scared, but yeah, I'm ready. All right, it's not rocking. All right, I'm sorry. It's close. Welcome to the Real Addicts Podcast, a podcast for both film addicts and those who are film curious, film adjacent. We want you here to welcome. We are talking this week during Black History Month about a film Jonathan chose called Creed. Jonathan, tell us about Creed. Happily, Matthew. Happily. I want to call you Pretty Boy Flynn for some reason. So Creed is a film that I really, really enjoyed when it came out in theaters. It is a film that is an extension, I would say, for now, we'll get into this, of the Rocky Balboa film franchise. So that there were six films in the Rocky Balboa film franchise. And then I would say that this one takes place 10 years later and centers on the character of Adonis Creed who goes by Adonis Johnson. We'll get into that too. But it is about the illegitimate child of Apollo Creed. So for those of you who don't know, and it feels so strange to be doing this because we just heard that Carl Weathers had died. So it's just very crazy that we're talking about this now. Apollo Creed was Rocky's opponent in the original Rocky movie. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Rocky, he loses to Apollo Creed and then rematches him in the sequel, a fight that Rocky wins. And then Apollo Creed actually dies somewhere within the franchise. And now his illegitimate son, Adonis Creed, is within the foster care system. In the opening scene, we find him at a youth detention center in a fight. And he is visited by and adopted by Marianne Creed, who is Apollo's wife, which is a crazy... It's it's just a loaded thing to be happening in the opening scene of a movie just because she is not his biological mother. He is the the product of an affair that Apollo had and now she is taking him into his into her home, which I think is just a crazy thing, but the world is a crazy place and I know that there are people who, yeah, mistresses and wives become best friends after a man dies, so I could see something like this taking place and yeah, he grows up and goes to seek out the tutelage or the guidance of Rocky Balboa, who's retired and running a restaurant in Philadelphia. Because where else would he be? Right. The champ. He has to be in Philly. I love that setup. Okay, for people who didn't pick up on this during our 2023 or certainly during the Do the Right Thing episodes, probably the most important thing to me in a film is how we open. I'm very big on dissecting the opening. What's the first thing I see? Where are you transporting me? How are you showing it? What's the opening title sequence look like if there is one? And this was so interesting. I love that you framed it the way that you did. You did a great job breaking it down because they tell you so little. It's really a show don't tell. And there's a lot of respect for the audience here that Ryan Coogler has when he's making this where you don't know. There's kind of a question like, wait, who is she? She's not the mother? But we don't learn until later on when it would be appropriate to unveil this in the story as something with respect for an audience that it's, yes, our suspicions that maybe this was an affair that he had had are true. And it's just a really great form of storytelling to kick things off. I love this intro. And Felicia Rashad, who I just think, am I the only one who thinks of her as like an icon? Every time she shows up, I'm just always amazed and my jaw drops. No! No, she is absolutely an icon. Yeah. 
Claire Huxtable, for those of you who don't know. And she became even more of an icon, I think, after the Cosby scandal broke and everything. Yeah. People were like, my God. Yeah. That woman is a saint because she she was right next door to that for so long. But yeah. she is. She's fantastic. I am such a huge fan. I, was, I wasn't a big Cosby show person, but I just loved her. She was that mom, a maternal figure. You don't mess with her, right? You don't want to eat her meals, but you don't want to get on a wrong side. Yeah, that's a perfect way of capturing that. So yeah, let's dive right into this. What do we call this? Is this a sequel? Is this a reboot? Is it an extension? I don't know. Like, where do you think it falls? I think to break it down, you have to go through the lineage. And Rocky One is a dark film that people don't really remember because I feel like not only is it older, unless you're watching this annually, the franchise tends to blend and it tends to culminate with the Apollo Creed death Yes. And by the way, this is very odd. I'm glad you brought that up. It is rest in peace, Carl Weathers. What a fantastic actor. Everything from this straight through his dry comedy and Arrested Development and everything in between. It's just been a pleasure to watch his work throughout his life. But everybody kind of remembers Rocky IV. Rocky IV, the big, the Russian, the Drago death scene for Creed and Rocky. If I can change, if you could change, all of that. But the first movie, that origin story is dark and it's brilliantly written and you get into two and it's a little hokier. Three is a cartoon. <laughs> four, four is a montage with a tragedy. Five is unwatchable. And I, I, I think the most interesting thing about this franchise, about Creed in general, is the question that can't be answered. Does this movie happen or this franchise even occur if it weren't for Rocky Balboa, the sixth film in the franchise where it really, I went and saw that just because people were saying it was good. And I'm like, I don't believe it. Five was such a train wreck. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And the whole Tommy Gunn and five thing, it's, it's just not good. It doesn't mean that in the shock meter, I wouldn't put like, I might like it. I don't think I do. I think I might hate it. I think I only saw it once. And like, I it's don't, it's not good. It's not, it's not good. It's certainly not good. Like, that could, is not, that's not likeable. the debate. <laughs> yeah, it could be likable. But Rocky Balboa, that sixth film, that's just not the name of the character for people who don't realize that's actually the name and the title of the sixth entry right. of the Rocky franchise. That brought such credibility back to the franchise that I think it is what allowed for the launch pad for Creed to happen. I think that that's a good. That's a good breakdown of that. I also think that one of the most inspired moments is actually in Rocky Balboa, and he gives a speech to his son, which is one of the best speeches in in films. And it's just about like getting knocked down and getting back up, and it's just so powerful the way he sells it. He's a brilliant man in this franchise, like from start soup to nuts. Yeah, he's got yeah. hokey stuff. He's got different stuff, but it always works because the character stays true to himself, and he's made this character to be this simplistic. There's this kind of almost a a lovable spectrum-based mentality that he has where he's just a big cuddly teddy bear and he's a kind heart and you can't break it. But as we see in this movie, and I'm sure we'll get to, there are times where his frustration and his anger and his sadness do come out and you realize this is a human. This isn't just a guy who's nice all the time to the point of being dopey. He's a human that can lash out and can be wrong. I often compare the first Rocky to The Wrestler, the uh, Darren Aronofsky film. Because it feels like there are just a lot of striking similarities between those two. Just like there's the working class guy. People notice him, but they don't really notice him. Plus, they're both very gritty films. 
They are. And there's a the blessing and the curse to success. Like success isn't always what you think right. it's going to be. Right. That grass is always greener mentality. And for the people who have made it that I know, because I certainly haven't achieved the things I want or thought I would want to achieve, but I've realigned my expectations and my dreams based on seeing the people who have gotten that just not being what it was all cracked up to be. So the wrestler, I think, is a good comparison. It's just a really tragic. Yes version of it rather than the success story right yeah and so creed picks up about i'd say like 10 15 years later so he's young he's probably in his early 20s adonis creed mm-hmm. he's working in finance i actually love it because <laughs> the first time you see him he's actually boxing in a bar in tijuana mexico and there's this smash cut right in the middle of the fight to him sitting at a desk in like a bank <laughs> but it's not it's kind of like it reminded me of after hours you know, it wasn't like a like a really nice kind of it just he looked like he was just a, a drone. Yeah. Miserable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he goes into his boss's office, gives him his resignation, and then goes to tell uh Marianne Creed that he is going to be fighting full time. We don't waste any time. And we go right from her adopting him, him being violent and fighting all the time, to the fight in Tijuana. Bam, bam, bam. It's very economical. And this movie has places it could probably get trimmed down it's a long film we're at like 215 for a runtime i think and there are places it could be cut but it's certainly not the open the open is just bam 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 and we're in it i think it breezes by i don't know if there is excess fat i think they pace it really well it's interesting that that's your take on the two things i should mention that are important i think to the story is one that at this point he is not boxing as Adonis Creed. He's boxing as Adonis Johnson, which is his mother's maiden name. So he's not using his father's name. From what we understand, he wants to make a name for himself. And then the other thing is he has something to prove. We just don't know what it is. Like it's it's clear that he's trying to accomplish something. And then quick question. I'm thinking back at the open. How old is he, do you think, when we open the film? In, that- in the juvenile detention center? Yeah. Nine? Like nine or 11, like nine, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Okay, you're in that world. Yeah. When Felicia Richard shows up, he doesn't know who his father is. He does. I don't have a dad. Like, he's never been told. Right. So it's really interesting. It adds this other layer where there was that anger and hatred and hostility. Yeah. And he didn't even know. Then at 9, 10, 11, he has to understand he did have a dad. His dad died before he was born. And his dad was the most famous boxer in the history of the world in this dimension of film. I don't know if we ever closed our, our conversation, but so like sequel, reboot, like what do you, I mean, it is a reboot because Creed became a franchise all on its own. It's a sequel because it's a continuation of the Rocky Balboa story. It's something else. I, okay. I don't think it's any of these things, okay. right? It has to be its own thing because we're in that world. We're with that character. Rocky is the supporting character of this film. And it's um, in that way, I guess it's a sequel. I guess it's just a sequel because we just stay in that world and we're on the linear timeline of the other franchise. We've just replaced the title and the camera's following somebody new full time. Okay. That's like, it's interesting because I think a lot of the things in the original, in the trilogy with Apollo and it's in Apollo's character arc in the first few movies is... He's the villain. Like in the first movie, he's the bad guy, basically. Or he's like the the nemesis. And then two, there's kind of like shades of gray around their relationship just because they've been familiarized with each other. Whereas in the first, like mm-hmm. Rocky comes out of nowhere. And then they become 
friends in the third like i mean he he trains rocky to, to fight and so yeah. it's just interesting because he's kind of seen as the villain and he's a black man and i think that that's definitely something that comes up and then rocky's seen as this white hope i think and i think that there's that and it's interesting to now go to creed and you're pivoting that to now it's michael b jordan a black youth who's becoming like the champ in essence it's a perspective shifted sequel that becomes its own thing but that's the nature of this is that we're perspective shifting as a sequel in this world and i think it's so fascinating and i didn't even consider this until now that we have the black community being represented in boxing in boxing you've got one man and one man this isn't a team with people on it that you like one-on-one -on -one. there's a black american man who is dancing all over the place and representing the country just before he died and you have an italian white man who's an underdog to boot very much like do the right thing you have the Italian community represented and going up against the black community represented. And it's very interesting just to see some of the things throughout the Rocky franchise of who's supporting who and what that means for race and, and the racism that occurs basically with a lot of the folks who maybe don't even know a lot about boxing, but are just throwing their support behind the person that looks like them. And I think that the nuances of that become very apparent in the third, because it's Mr. T who's the nemesis. And then it's Apollo Creed who's helping Rocky train to fight him. Yeah. Pretty interesting how both of these films so far, it's Italians versus yeah. the black community. Yeah. So we pick up, Adonis goes to Philadelphia. He seeks out Rocky. Rocky has no idea who this kid is. He has no he idea exists. that yeah. or that he exists, but he shows up and he's looking at, Adonis is looking at the photographs on the wall in the restaurant, which Apollo's in and a bunch of old Rocky pictures. And he just starts talking about things that he shouldn't know that no one should know. And he's like, where did you find all this out? And that's when it, like, it clicks for Rocky that, oh, this is Apollo Creed's son. How did you feel about that interaction? Like, I thought it felt perfectly executed to me. Like, it was understated, but like, there's this moment of brain blast for Rocky where he's like, oh, that's who you are. <laughs> I mean, that probably had to be one of the easiest scenes for Stallone to film in the entire franchise because he's just being rock. Yeah. It's not like he doesn't need to get emotional. He doesn't need to get sad. He's not having to calm situations down like he sometimes did. He's just coming up the stairs in a restaurant and he has to kind of like, how do you know that? Yeah. And it just, <laughs> it, there's some funny lines. Rocky is hilarious. Yeah. He's a great character. Uh, um, he is. And we, they they reference a third fight between Apollo and Rocky, which we find out at the end of, at the end of Rocky 3, after Apollo has trained Rocky, he tells Rocky, like after Rocky has won the fight, what the what his payment is for training. And it's a third fight with Apollo. So they go, they start scrapping in like a gym by themselves and it freeze frames and that's how the movie ends and you don't know who wins. And now it picks up at that. So, so many years later with Rocky acknowledging that Apollo won that fight. I watched the end of three just to get that, ooh. Ooh, I, it came up when Carl Weathers was being tributed yeah. throughout social media and after his passing. And they're, ooh, back and forth. And it's filmed in this funny way. And then you finally get that wide shot with just one on each side and the freeze frame of the southpaw coming in for the headshot. And they're just about to beat the hell out of each other. And it just freezes right there. And I just thought, like, who decides who wins this? Like, these guys are absolute beasts and yeah they're friends but they're arguably the two most dangerous men in the world this has to be the most irresponsible act 
<laughs> in the history of time. But and and I don't know how many rounds did it go. I just there's information I wish I had that we never will on this. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's the way it went because it paints the previous movies in a whole new light and Apollo in a whole different light. Um, yeah, he's a really likable guy. And there's nothing better in a film, a TV series, or a franchise than something well-written that takes a character from good to bad or bad to good and then makes them human. Yeah. You know, this is a person that, oh my God, we hated him. And now I really felt that way about Jacob Elodi. Is that his name? Yeah. His character in Euphoria in season one where you're like, God, I hate this kid so much. And then you see the episode open where you kind of get his origin story, which is a brilliant thing that they do in that series. And that's like, wow, I, now I have compassion. Shit, I didn't want to have compassion yeah. towards him, and now I do. Yeah, it's actually a really good series for them doing that because I feel like they do that with every character. Like yeah. They like just take people from a pedestal down to the ground and then build people back up. So it's a very interesting. That's a good, I like that reference. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this before. Like, I think that, you know, we're all capable. I know we talked about on the, the top 10 of 2023. Like, I think it was when we we're talking about anatomy of a fall, like we're all capable of like the good, the bad and the ugly. It's like, mm -hmm. what day do you catch us on? So <laughs> that's something I can relate to when I see a character with that much complexity. Cause I'm like, Ooh, that's yeah. I have that in me and I have the other thing in me and I, I can, mm -hmm. I get behind that. Cause I think historically film characters have been pretty archetypal where it's the black hats and the white hats right yeah yeah so where do we go from here he goes to philly yep starts training with well rocky does not want to train him he okay is... so this is part of what i think we could cut a little out of and then when i say we can cut some stuff i'm saying there's a little bit of the will he won't he we know he's gonna we yeah. know he's gonna okay. so i think taking some of the air out of that balloon that's fair is is a good place to start to trim a yeah. little bit of the fat that's fair. After his initial meeting with Rocky, he goes home. He's sleeping in an apartment. Here's music, which I think this is one of the best meat cutes in the world, by the way. <laughs> goes downstairs and knocks on Amber's door, who's blasting music. And it's the door opens to Tessa Thompson's character, who is Bianca. This is how we are introduced to her. And he is like, hey, like your music's loud. Can you lower it? And uh, she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'll lower it. And like goes back inside and just starts blasting it again. Uh, after making some cracks at him for like, oh, you need to be up at the gym the, tomorrow, like for, <laughs> to pump some iron, basically. Um, I do love that line. I do that because he's like, yeah, I got to be up early to go to the gym and work out. And it's one of those things, the way he delivers it isn't like a douchebag. And first of all, I haven't even taken an opportunity to say how fantastic Michael B. Jordan is. And I think now's the time, right? Like the guy is amazing. Yeah. I've been such a fan since The Wire. And his physique is ridiculous. His chops are really good. The effort he puts into this, I'm so glad. I never saw the third one. I haven't yet, but that he got built to the opportunity to direct it. And I yeah. heard he did a fantastic job directing it. So kudos to him and all his hard work. But he, any other actor could have very easily just been that like, oh yeah, I got to go to the gym tomorrow. I got to be up early. And he says it in a way that's, the moment it comes out of his mouth, it's like apologetic. He's just kind of like, why did I have to say that? There's that tiny bit of, and I feel that shit all the time when your ego says something out of your mouth and you wish you could instantly just grab it and put it back in. So you're like, what the hell did I say? I didn't need to say that. that was, it's ridiculous. Story of my life that you just described. <laughs> just every she, day of my life. <laughs> she shames him for it. The music goes back up and that's that. Yeah. And then he's like, you know, they kind of strike up a romance. He goes to see her at her show because she is a musician. And then one of the things I wanted to call out that I think is so great is they go out on a date. 
he actually just knocks on our door and is like, I'm going to get something to eat. Would you like to come? And awesome move. Awesome move. This is, I don't like dates. I don't date. I don't yeah. like all this, but like the quick little, Hey, I'm going to do this. I'd really like it. If you came, you're welcome to, if you don't, I'm going to do it anyway. Great move. Yeah. And then they go out to get cheesesteaks because he hasn't gotten any yet and he hasn't had the Philadelphia experience. So she brings him to a place. Pat's or Gino's? Which one? That was one or two. I don't think she goes to Pat's or Gino's. I think it's a third place. I was thinking about that. I thought it was Gino's, but maybe you're right. Yeah. It's a third place. And they walk in and I just love her, her performance, his performance and the uh, supporting characters who are like working in the restaurant who I would imagine are guys who work there because it just feels very authentic. That entire scene. It almost feels mm-hmm. like they just went in there with cameras and filmed the scene because it sounds like they're just talking to somebody from the neighborhood. And it's like a documentary style um, scene. They start to get close. He starts training with Rocky. And then we are introduced to pretty Ricky Conlon, who is a British boxer who is really just <laughs> as douchey as they get. I mean, he's just like a very unlikable, toxically masculine boxer who we look like soon learn that he is in trouble with the law and facing prison time. How'd you feel about him? He's, I liked him. I liked him. And I like him because he's an asshole. He's arrogant. He looks so dangerous and he's got such a great punch and he's the champ, right? But then when we get to the final fight, I won't spend time here, but I just, they come out and Adonis looks like an Adonis. And this guy looks like Doughboy. He's just not in shape. And I love guys that don't look like it, but that are bad dudes and can throw and fight. So that was really cool. I'm like, oh, they didn't get some chiseled, like we're afraid to look at him. Like we got some guy who's actually dangerous and looks like you could get one over on him because like he might not even work out based on his physique, but he's, he's the real deal. I like this character. I liked his violent streak. Yeah. And he's, he's very unlikable. He's a perfect character to just want to root against and also be terrified of putting somebody in the ring with. And it's worth mentioning that somebody that Adonis has lost a fight on early in the film with uh, fights pretty Ricky Conlon and is destroyed, like just decimated. Did he lose a fight to him or did he just get blasted in the gym? He gets knocked out like by him. Yeah. Like, and he, he's like trying to prove something in the, in the Wood Harris scene in the gym and then gets knocked down. Let's really just take a moment to say, why would you ever cast Wood Harris to then take Wood Harris away from us? I needed him in the rest of the movie because I love him and I just yeah. wanted him to be a part of this. And it, that was the one mistake I thought casting wise. Because I'm like, what? This is like killing Bill Murray in a film. You can't do it. I want Wood Harris for the rest of the ride. Okay. So I have a feeling that Matt's going to put um, Chris Glover in the Wood Harris role later on when we, get to, <laughs> when we get to that recasting. But I think that you put him in this movie to then have him have a larger part in the sequel. Because he is in Creed 2. I don't know that I've seen the second one. Okay, that makes oh, sense. Oh, you got to check out Creed 2. I think I have, but not since the theater because I really enjoyed the first one. But I haven't. I do need a rewatch. Do you know who the the second one is? The Nemesis. Who is it? It's Ivan Drago's son. Oh yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. I don't yeah. remember it. I don't remember it, but I remember that. That's a big deal. Yeah, it's definitely a good sequel. We're introduced to him while this is a boxing movie, and I think a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people who aren't in sports movies, and they immediately get turned off by like anything that's sports. And I have this conversation all the time with Friday Night Lights because I always recommend Friday Night Lights to people, and they're like, "I'm not into football." I'm like, "It's not just about football. There's more to this story than people just throwing a ball around." And I think that. This is about more than just boxing. I think it's about friendship and family and finding an identity and building a legacy and forgiving the past and all of those things. And I think that 
this is around the time in the film where we really start building up the relationship between Rocky and Adonis, which is really interesting to me because I think, well, one, Rocky takes on the role of uh, his trainer, Mickey, from the first films. So he becomes the mentor. And also, I think Adonis, who has never had a father figure, almost gets like this father figure in his life, who's looking out for him and trying to give him good advice since he knew his father and would know what his father would want for his son. They just have really great chemistry together. Adonis is just like, yeah, I'm going to start. I'm going to move in with you. We're going to be a training camp. And he's like, he's like, you better not walk around naked. And he's like, you better not walk around naked. <laughs> just one of my favorite lines. You painted such a great picture of the come up story and what people have to go through to find themselves and to really grow as an individual through this time period. Because what are we calling him age wise? Mid 20s? Yeah, I'd say like, yeah, probably 25. Not early. Yeah, I'd say mid 25, 26. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because to keep it in line too with the theme of Black History Month, like it's very interesting at, at the start, we're in a detention center. And it's like, all right, okay, cool. So he's, he's a violent kid. All right, now he's in a fight and he doesn't know his dad. And I'm like, are we doing this? Not Not a problem if we are fine but for me as a white guy as a person as a viewer are we just going to paint that another black youth in a detention center who's violent and this is the story of a lot of fighters it's not like it's a, a story that shouldn't be told but what made it so interesting is felicia richard adopting him and giving him a privileged upbringing and bringing him into a new class like he's in a new lifestyle than he otherwise ever would have been so now it's a really interesting job that I think Kugler does an amazing job, the director, of saying money doesn't do everything. It doesn't fix problems. In some cases, it can make them worse or more difficult. And now he's had to find out who he is in the way that these other fighters not only haven't, but that they, they don't respect. For sure. He's a silver spooner. So he's actually, they gave him another layer to work through as a character, which isn't the prototypical black youth layer that you see in film. And it was really beautiful to watch that in motion because it was done so organically, both in the performance and the writing. It's interesting because I went back and did some um, reading and, and looking at some interviews and Ryan Coogler was talking about how his father was a, largely an inspiration for the film because he, growing up, he always saw his father as, you know, the a representation of black masculinity. And to them, him, that was always like physical strength and dominance in there. But later in life, his father got sick. And while he was sick, Ryan Coogler had to revisit that and realize that it wasn't the physicality that made his father like so strong. It was like, all the other stuff on the inside of him, like enduring this battle and this illness. And he, he like, it made him revisit his own perception of what it is to be a man. And he really wanted to channel that into the film. And I think he does a great job of it, especially with the Rocky storyline. Definitely. This is a really well-directed film and I'm surprised it didn't get more notoriety on that front. I think the film is like a boxing movie on the surface, but I think it's about identity and black masculinity and what it is to have an absent father figure. And I think not to put you on the spot, but I think that you could probably, <laughs> I mean, both of us, because I know it, we are both people who are raised in with an absent father figure. And that does a lot of things to you, because I think that there is always a sense of what a man was and other people had that in their lives. And I was raised by women mostly. And I mean, I had older brothers and stuff, but 
there's a sense of, oh, like anything that even remotely resembled any feminine quality felt like a weakness to me. And I wanted to shield any of those things that were inside of me from the world. And it just creates a complex of like, oh, I'm, am I inferior to everybody else? Yeah, I had a very interesting upbringing with that because it's very easy to say I was raised exclusively by women because I was. And even the pets, I like to say, were female in the house, but they didn't need a man. They took care of their business. These are women that could change their own oil. They did what needed to be done. And that was that. They were very self-sufficient. And if things needed to get loud and kind of masculine, if we're talking about masculinity, then they got loud and kind of masculine. And like nobody backed down from a fight. No one went looking for them necessarily either. So I learned a lot of masculinity from watching the women in my orbit. And then you kind of go out into the world and you're you're choosing friends who have fathers that you're kind of like, his dad's really cool. You learn more about what it means to be a man at that point. And my mom got married to my stepfather when I was seven. And he and I have your typical kind of contentious stepfather and stepson relationship through my teens and my craziness. Now we're thickest thieves and he's the best guy in the freaking world like that's he's a father figure now you know he's a good guy he's a good person and i love him but i never met my biological father he's out in the world at some point maybe we will maybe we won't but it is an interesting thing to kind of learn what it means to be a man and watch characters do that on a similar journey that you've taken in your own life in a way that resonates and isn't pandering isn't my favorite show on earth is six feet under and the girl who showed it to me woman now, girl at the time when we were dating, and she's going through a divorce, and she went to mortuary school later in life, in her 40s. And she also agreed, this is the greatest show ever made. And I talked to her, and she's like, I can't watch it anymore. It's bullshit. They do everything in the mortuary wrong. That's not how you do this. It's all, and it's really painful when you know something, whether it's technical or it's just emotional something that you've gone through and you see people doing it wrong when it would be so easy to do it right. And it's basically just because like, ah, eh, there's not going to be too many morticians watching this. But as somebody who had a journey to find masculinity in his life, they took the time, they wrote it right, they cast it right, and they directed it right. They made a really beautiful piece about what it means to go and search for that. And it's interesting because I think it's right around that point in the story where like, because there's a few things that happen. One, uh, it comes out that Adonis is Apollo Creed's son, which he's been trying to keep it secret the entire time, which creates a rift with Bianca because she felt like he's keeping secrets from her too. What do you think about that? Because this is a thing you and I have gone back and forth on. This is probably our biggest contention <laughs> from Jump. When we were making The Frog March, which is a feature <laughs> film John wrote and directed, I produced and we both co-starred and we made for freaking... $14 on, yeah. a ham sandwich, yeah. <laughs> and it's on YouTube if you ever want to watch it. It won some great awards. Cool, cool film I'm very proud of, and you absolutely should be. But there's a scene where their character lies and is found out about the lie, but did it for a reason to protect. And you and I went back and forth on whether or not that was a noble act or not. And this made me think of you when I'm watching him take shit from her. Like, granted, it's not her business, he didn't need to tell her, but she has a point. Yeah. She wants, and, and as somebody, when I'm in a relationship and I just went through something like this not that long ago, like I need to be, have it kept a hundred with me across the board. I need you to, to tell me and respect me enough to process things and have my own reaction experience to it. So I was like, Ooh, 
Ooh, I'm siding with her on this one, man. And thankfully he does too. But what was your take on that? So I also sided with her. It's interesting because uh, again, just kind of exploring the ideas of masculinity. I think their relationship, cause she doesn't, she's not crazy about him right off the bat. I think the moment that she really starts to warm up to him is they are, they're lying on her floor listening to music and he turns to her and he just like goes over and kisses her on the cheek. And that is it. Like he isn't trying anything else. And that is when she absolutely lights up and just starts kissing him back. And I, and it's like, oh, like she likes that he's vulnerable, that he's not a typical guy. And we learn it when he goes to her concerts or her shows that men are particularly handsy and treat her a certain way. So I think that there's this sense of not so much like that it's her business about Apollo being his father, but like the fact that he's keeping secrets and that probably scares the shit out of her. Yeah. And you mentioned her scene where they're laying on the floor and- Oh, this is a, it's such great writing and they do such a great job with this too. They're laying on the floor because she has hearing aids and she's yes. a performer. She's a singer and she has progressive hearing loss and she's going to lose her hearing. And her take on this isn't to feel sorry for herself. It's to say, I want to do this for as long as I can. The thing I love, the thing I'm most passionate about, I want to do for, until I can't anymore. And she doesn't waste a moment. And they're laying on the floor to feel the vibrations, which you realize like that's probably why the music was so loud when they first met. Right. And his acknowledgement of the beauty of that, of her perspective, of her vulnerability amidst challenge is such an arousing, really emotionally connective trait in a human. I love people with scars, internal, external. I love scars because it shows the humanity of another person, especially if they're willing to show them to somebody. Uh, and so that I was all, all in. I loved that they gave her a, a hearing issue and eventually, you know, it was going to be stripped from her. I thought that was a really great device. And, and it makes him more passionate and more human too, because he's drawn to somebody like that. A lot of people would just be like, she's not gonna be able to hear for a while. I'm out of here, you know, like LA culture folks, people that just can't come out and they expect everything and everyone to be perfect. It's like, no, man, show me the flaws. Yeah. I, I like, I absolutely agree with that. I definitely am drawn to people who, cause I have flaws and I need, I love surrounding myself with people around me who embrace their flaws and turn them into strengths. And it's funny because like talking about like what a man is, like, I think that I always struggled with and I still struggle with what to do in certain situations of what's the, what's the manly thing to do. And is it to step up to somebody in a fight? And like, you know, there's plenty of guys who can beat their chests and like, you know, punch a bag. Now, like I'm terrified by the guy who can like stand up in front of a group full of people and admit something really embarrassing about himself and it doesn't phase him in the least. I'm like, that's a scary motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting too, because I feel like I don't want to go down that road. Yeah, let's go down it. We can always cut it. My observations, and I don't know why, have always been that the black community just seems to be younger boys and, and men in their 20s to seem to be a little bit more aggressive with their masculinity, a little bit more chest pounding, a little bit more willing to fight. And I was always drawn to that because I was so angry. Even in my 30s, when I was working at the bar, one of my best friends and his crew were all gang or former gang members and there'd be fights and I'd be in the middle of it. And I was just like, I felt even as a man, an adult male, I just felt like this is how I need to get this out. And I don't anymore. It's really nice. It's one cool thing about LA is it's softened me enough and it's given me experiences that I've had to look internally on that have helped me 
walk through stuff where I don't have to be that guy anymore. But it's interesting to look at why, if that observation has merit, the black community has felt more aggressive and chest pounding when it comes yeah. to what masculinity looks like. I mean, I think that that's what black masculinity is all about. And like the concept of it is you're talking about a, a group of people who were subjugated in chains and beaten by people who were empowered above them and humiliated them and left them scarred and then destitute and, you know, like homeless and then causing them to do whatever they needed to do to survive. And I think that well, one, there's a generational trauma that's visited upon one generation to the next. And once slaves are free, like there's still that aggression that has been beaten into them that they've learned that that's just how the world interacts in America. And they definitely visit that from what I'm told upon children. And I think that that's something that keeps going down. So it's like this idea of looking like a man and not looking like you're being dominated or subjugated by anyone else. I think that that is very predominant in the black culture and why that's probably why you sense it. Yeah, I get that. And that makes a lot of sense because it doesn't always have to be a punch being thrown. Humiliation, ego, like trying to big time people. That's aggression. That's abuse. It's violence. It's a it's a form of that thing that I didn't necessarily understand. That's a big part of this plot, especially when you're talking about the headliner yeah. for her show. Yeah. And it comes up and, and he's calling him Baby Creed. Little Creed, Baby Creed. Maybe he's like, yeah, don't call me that. Perfectly reasonable ask. Yeah. Maybe don't call me baby Creed. I'm going to fight for the belt. I'm a respectable man. Yeah. It's a don't little emasculating to be called a baby by you. And then he's talking over him to his girl like he's not there. It's just, it's really, ugh, and it, it reeked of the music culture, like the film culture, just being so gross yeah it's just oozy and gross and like ugh, there's not a lot of respect there and now you start thinking why does he, this headliner have her is it because she's talented or he likes her music right or is that just happened to be a byproduct of the fact that he's attracted to her and right. trying to get in her pants and he's doing it right in front of him and he's had a bad day he finds out rocky has cancer and uh he and rock just kind of blow up and go in their their own directions and I love the line the headliner gives to him. He just says something like, uh, you better watch your mouth or you'll end up right next to your dad in a hole. Something to that effect, paraphrasing. And I'm like, what is this fat fool with a face tattoo going to do? I swear to God, man, people in the 21st century just think they get ink on their face and they're hard. It's like, that's not it, man. It's not it. It's so funny. And people are just like, man, they got dude's got a tattoo on his face. And you can see people just around him like, oh, this guy's bad. And he just drops him like a sack of potatoes. One punch, down he goes. And, you know, he gets in trouble for it. He gets locked up. She's obviously humiliated her now unintentionally at her job. But this is what it means to be a man in certain yeah. cultures. And I think yeah. Rocky's an awesome representation of the better road. It feels weird to say this, but like, I think the cancer subplot for him is really great because it gives him a fight of his own and it gives us a chance to see like the Rocky Balboa and like, you know, the determination that won us over in the first place. But also like he doesn't want treatment and even Adonis goes to Bianca and he's like, yeah, he's, he's too macho for that. And uh, it's interesting that he words it like that. And there's also, that's kind of juxtaposed by a scene where it's Bianca, Adonis and Rocky having dinner at Rocky's house. 
And he's the he's like the former heavyweight champ of the world. And he's like talking about how great they are. And he's like, and I'm just great for knowing people like you. And it's like not even about him. And it's <laughs> just like line. I love it. It's great. <laughs> it was luckier than me. I to spend a nice night with you guys. And you're a nice girl, good singer. I'm the lucky one. And it's not this like he's trying to there's nothing about it that makes you think he's just trying to deflect. be humble. He is genuine. Totally genuine. He really means it. Yeah. Love yeah. This character. Just going back to there's this, you know, sense of like what a man is. And like, yes, Rocky does show that. But like, I like that they, he still has flaws and like it calls back to Polly and Adrian and like what she went through. And I think it's like Conlon, right? Cause like this is right around the time where like pretty Ricky Conlon is like the epitome of misogyny, like toxic masculinity. Like he is like just carrying guns and getting into fights and talking shit. And uh, and you can see like, it, and it's funny because even in his mentor, there's one scene where he's talking to his manager and his manager is just like a troll who's just trying to get him to like get more money and put himself out there more. And with the ticking clock. He, yeah. With the ticking clock. Right. He's like, he's, you got, we're, we're, made, we're taking this fight and we're getting the bag because you're yeah. going away. And um, it's interesting because like, I mean, even when he shows up at the fight at the end, like he's in black and blue trunks. One of the sweetest, most vulnerable moments is earlier on when when Adonis is getting into a fight, they're back in the locker room with the gloves. And he's like, he's like, he's like, untape my hands, untape my hands. And he's like, I got, he's like, I'm freaking out. I got a shit. Like, are you, is somebody going to wipe my ass? And then like, they like excuse and like hold it off. And I'm just like, oh man, like that is such, I'm sure that happens. And it's just like such a raw moment that you under, like you get to see somebody who is feeling things and going through shit and it's like it's a tender moment and then at the end like he gets the 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 boxing match and he shows up and um we'll get to the trunks in a minute but he comes out and he's just like being himself he's being authentic and then ricky conlin comes out there's like guys spitting flames and there's like smoke and like like rap music playing and it's just oh like who is putting on a show man like what is this the wwe (laughs) i just remember when tyson was fighting i think botha some he had a fight in the 90s and it's so amazing when the lights go down and it's a wwf moment I'm not calling it WWE. Sorry, Vince. I'm never doing it. It's <laughs> WWF. I like to pretend that that never happened. It's WWF. The lights go down and DMX's Rough Riders anthem started. And I was a teenager with like a giant thing of smearing off an orange juice on somebody's couch. Like, yeah, going nuts. Just aggro. I'm rooting for t- just the experience of that moment, that buildup. But the crazy thing is when you get in the ring and the lights go up and it's like last call lights, everything's up. It's just like, what was the point of doing that? It meant nothing. It was a fun little hype thing, but it was no way indicative of the experience we're about to have at all. It was really just this strange little music video we had prior to the film. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's really funny that you bring up Mike Tyson. I, I guess it's not funny because like, I don't know if we can talk about boxing and, and masculinity without talking about Mike Tyson because I feel like not Mike Tyson was just... It's funny because I don't know if you ever saw the Mike Tyson documentary about like his upbringing, but when he was a kid, he would, he was like known as a nice kid and he'd be around the neighborhood. And one of the things he did was he would train carrier pigeons. And one day, like some thug in the neighborhood killed one of his carrier pigeons and like he went berserk and beat the crap out of him. And that was like where his basically trajectory started as like a fighter. And it's so interesting that it came from a place of a child being scorned because somebody killed his bird. And it's just so interesting that somebody who is seen as 
so brutal and savage came from that place and that it was born from that place. Yeah. But you could see it. Yeah. It's funny because you and I were talking and you were like, hey, it'll be easy. Like Creed will be easier than do the right thing. And I'm like, you know, I think that there's a lot to Creed just as far as like black identity and black um, masculinity and like finding your way in the world and a legacy. And again, like generational wealth and trying to find your place in the world. And I love that it culminates in this fight against Conlon, where basically Conlon just wants to fight Apollo Creed's son just to have that one on his belt. And you know, they go into the ring and when he gets there, there's a gift for him. There's a gift for Adonis in the locker room from Marianne and he opens it up and, you know, there's a note that says, uh, build your own legacy. And it's Apollo Creed's trademark trunks, but on the front of it says Johnson on the back of it says Creed. So it's just like, oh, you can be both of these people. You can be like complex. Like you don't need to pick one or the other. You can have nuance and layers. And I love that when she signs the card, she puts M.A. for Marianne, but it looks like Ma. And it's just so perfect. And there's that like tracking shot of, that follows him from inside the locker room out into the ring. The one thing we fail to talk about is the tracking shot in the, the earlier boxing match, which is just astonishing because we is. need to talk about that. So the NBA has done this thing that they introduce from time to time now where you're on the floor and you're just kind of like in the past. And it's a very interesting tracking shot, for lack of a better term, but it's jarring and you're missing the big picture. And because it's not an overview that we're just so accustomed to, I find myself alone in a room yelling at televisions to put it back, put it back, (laughs) pull out, give me the wide. I found myself having a slightly similar reaction, even though we're in a fight and there's just two people, there's nothing else to keep an eye on. Right. It, It looked really good with the punches, but... It was, it took me out of it a little bit, I think just because I I was too in it. It was too immersive for me. Okay. I didn't, I didn't hate it. Just to be clear, I didn't hate it and I didn't have a problem with it. And I thought it was innovative and really interesting and well done for what it was. But I do think the immersion kind of made me a little disoriented. Yeah, that's fair. I think tracking shots are tough. And I think that, especially in fights and the ones that I'm, that come to mind are, there's the one old boy on the show Daredevil, there's also one that's very similar to the old boy one, but they like put it on steroids and like add a lot more to it. Yeah, but the old a, boy one is the bar. Yeah, but it's a, it's a wide shot. It's a full shot. And it's very easy to hide things in a wide shot. Like, I mean, like when it comes to like in terms of fighting. So when they're doing a boxing match, which is close, I love one, the perspective, because we very rarely get to see what it actually feels like to be a fighter in that ring. We forget that like, we like look at it as a Nintendo game. We're like, oh yeah, we can see everything that's happening around us. And you're like, you know, you have this and this, and that's all you get. But on like the technical side of them punching each other and then like coming away with their eyebrows bleeding. And you're like, wait a minute, how did that happen? Like, how did you stage that? What if somebody messed up like a squib? Like, yeah, there's just like a lot of things that could go wrong. And I really just had to admire the the innovativeness of that. That's part of the Michael B. Jordan love that yeah. I'm definitely given. It's not just the performance and his performances are great. If it were just that, and he had an identical twin that he threw in the ring every single time there was a fight scene, I'd still give him credit because he does his job well. But he gives and takes a beating. That scene, it's an uncut, five minutes long, two-round boxing match that he wins. I'm wondering if, do you think that most people appreciate tracking shots? Like, I appreciate them because I know what goes into them and like what's happening outside of the frame of all that hard work. 
do you think other people are looking and being like, oh, this is impressive? Like, obviously, subconsciously, it's having an effect. I think the general public has a, um, it's kind of like it, you only notice audio when it's bad. Mm. I think if it's a tracking shot that isn't too long, I always think of the, the early pinnacle was the opening to Boogie Nights. Yeah. And then and Goodfellas. That was it. Goodfellas too. But it, just the fact that you meet every character that you need to basically in Boogie Nights and that, yeah. that swooping intro the crane shot that goes into the tracking and it's just short enough and it's so immersive you're in the shot that i think a lot of people get swept away with what's happening and don't understand it but when you get to a level of birdman yes yeah. then it's just everybody knows and they're like wait a minute have we got ever in this movie and that's i think when people really start to stiffen up and say wow this is this is unbelievable. I've never seen anything like this. It's like, actually you have, you just haven't seen it for this long. And it's just as hard to do it for a shorter period of time. Yeah. Especially like I'm thinking about the movie Rope and they shot it in Hitchcock's day when you had 700 pound cameras that you were moving around and like you're doing tracking you know, shots. Camera. Yeah, there's no, you can't carry something around on your, like a harness on your chest. You're like, you have to like knock down a wall for that. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, but the tracking shot, I, I, I really like that. But going back to the scene at the end, this film, def like it, it feels in many ways formulaic. It is the rise of a athlete, an underdog story. But there's also all this nuance about relationships and friendships and vulnerability and what it is to be a man. That is largely exposed in the dynamic that Adonis has with Bianca, but also with Rocky. But it's interesting that you get to a place where I'm like, you're not, I did not know how the fight was going to end the first time I saw it. Like, is he going to win? Like, is he going to lose? Like, this could go any, like, it, it could go any way. And it was literally, there are parts where you're like, oh, he's got this. And then you're like, other parts where you're like, he's about to get like his ass killed. I know we're going to get to all time lines, but like, I can't think of a better line in the entire movie and they sell it perfectly and you never see it coming is when Rocky wants to call the fight. And he's like, um, he's like, why do you want to do this? And he goes, I ha he's like, I have to prove it. And he's like, prove what? And he's like, that I'm not a mistake. And it's so heartbreaking to hear him say that. And that's a part that resonates with me because you're brought up in a world where we're kind of fed these storylines of families and the Brady Bunch and all that stuff. And to be like an illegitimate child or have an absent father figure that has abandoned you, like you wonder, like, what is your place in all of this? And for him to like question that on a much larger scale. It's like a really tragic but beautiful thing to see. And I think every single person in the world, if they looked deep enough within, could make that statement about something. Yeah. Because even if you're planned, even if the circumstances are perfect, even if nothing turns out the way you expect it to in life and to prove that I'm here for a reason, I'm not a mistake. I related to that. I might be doing this podcast to prove that I'm not a mistake. I, like My life choices where I've moved geographically, the adventures I go on, the people I immerse myself with, it could very well be boiled down that simply. I think there's a little more nuance to it with some of my choices, but I do relate to that. And it is a beautiful line. That's probably one of the lines of the film for sure. That's just like, oh man, it, it does hit you. It hits you in the heart. And to see him go back out there and fight the way he does when he looks like he's getting killed. Yeah. It looks like the first round's done. You know it's not going to be, obviously, but you're just, my God, he's taking a beating. Yeah. Uh, when he's sitting in the corner and the ref comes over to like to see if he can see through the eye and Cutman is tapping him on the back of the head to let him know how many figures he's holding up, you're like, this is getting dicey. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. And it also goes to show never bet on a boxing match. <laughs> like it's it's if you don't know by now this is the most fixed, rigged, ridiculous sport where anything can happen, like save your money. It's just not the one to bet on. They're all pretty much rigged in some form or fashion, but hell, boxing <laughs> it's 50-50 shot, but damn, corrupt. Yeah. I can't argue with that. All right. So let's talk about the, the way this plays out though. So it kind of defies formula, but then is he going to win? Is he not going to win? It ends in a split decision and uh, goes it is 12 rounds goes 12 rounds. 12. And it's worth noting that, you know, another 10 seconds Creed wins because he is beating the shit out of him. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And it's he beautiful. knocks him down and he couldn't get up and he, he barely gets up. Right. Yeah, there's that, well, he there's that earlier shot where Creed gets knocked down and he is on the floor and there are all of those flashes from the story. And then they put that shot of Carl Weathers in there that you do not expect to see. And you're just like, damn. Like, yeah. Uh, and that's when he just like wakes up. And it's the same thing at uh, Conlon at the end. He does not, I mean, he gets up, but he's falling down. It's that, oh, you can't be saved by the bell. So he's down yeah. and the round is over, but he's down and they're counting him. Right. And it's one of those things where we've seen it before where you get three quarters of the way up and is he going to fall into the ropes and just be done? Is it? Ah, ah. No, shit. He stood up. Oh, damn. He beat the yeah. count. So he's not down and the fight's over. And now we got to go to a decision. And the decision is that Ricky Conlon continues to be the champ. The commentators have a good line where they're like, Ricky Conlon wins the match and and Adonis Creed wins the night. Because like yeah, people walk out of there. Yeah. Everybody, and they're in England. That's kind of like, the Russians chant Rocky kind of thing. But, and, and that's the cool thing. They use these tropes in a way that isn't force feeding. So it is Rocky four with the chant, but for Creed, it is Rocky one where he loses, but he's got his girl in the ring and he's in love and he's happy. It is these things that work for these other things, but they've made it not forced for this character, but it's just more of a beautiful trajectory of life repeating itself. That is the crux of the film, of the fact that these two men have helped each other, you know, overcome these battles. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I do too. Because I think it could have been easily, it would have been so easy to like paint this as like a white savior movie where like Rocky has saved like Adonis Creed. And that's not the fact is like Adonis Creed absolutely saves Rocky just as much. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because if he hadn't shown up at the restaurant, cancer's coming. Yeah. If it's not already there and he ain't fighting. He's not going to fight it. He's not going to get treatment. The scene that we really get to see Sylvester Stallone cook in, it's in his kitchen. Yes. Where he, tell, he starts to say how much his wife suffered and how much he'd trade everything he's ever had in his entire world for another hour with her. And you just remember that love that was always so genuine between he and Adrian. And he's in so much pain. It hurts so much to see people in pain, especially people that you've loved for so many films, yeah. for so many decades that you just know is a good person at their heart and core. And it's a beautiful scene. Sylvester Stallone does not get enough love for being a great actor. He does not. Yeah. He is definitely yeah. great. Rocky really has given him a, an ability to showcase even Rambo the, for the first blood yeah. first movie. It's like, my God, this guy can act. He's very, very talented. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's always a joy to see him in these movies later on too, whether it's Rocky Balboa or Creed. Let's wrap this up. It ends, the film ends in a perfect callback to, in the original film, Rocky running up the steps. But at the end, it's 
Adonis escorting Rocky like very slowly up the the steps in Philadelphia to the top where it is a trek. It is a struggle to get up there and there are points where Rocky needs to take a break. But then they Adonis gives him some some lip to to get him going. <laughs> have, have you done the forward. steps? Have you been to Philly and done the steps? I have done the steps. All right, good. I haven't run them. I'm not that crazy. Oh, come on. They're not that big. Come on. You know what? It was at a part in my life where I was just too self-conscious to be doing it. If I go back, I'll definitely run the steps. Good man. So let's go through the categories. Well, first of all, shock meter. What's your verdict? I'm going, I have to break it down in terms of stars to get here because this is not an instant classic, great, great, great all-time masterpiece for me. But I'd give it four stars and four makes great for me. Four, four, four and a half and five, I think are my great zone. And then three, three and a half are good. And anything under three, it's, eh. I would say this is a great movie and I loved it. I would also say it's a great movie and I loved it. I mean, it's just like the fan service, the nostalgia, and then just seeing the, like a new character that you can root for. Absolutely. Loved it. Yeah. The fine wine, cheese, and the sun. The I aging mean, category. it's only eight years old and I couldn't tell you that it's aged at all. Is it only eight years old? 2015. Wow. I didn't realize that. So, so nine, but close. Yeah. Yeah. You're about there. Wow. Yeah. No, it's aged really well. I don't think if there's, this is a very serious eight years. Yes. Like cancel culture. Yes. There's so yeah. much. If For you sure. took five other movies from that year, <laughs> yes. people would be strung out and deported, I'm sure, for something that they didn't in those films, whatever these hypothetical films might be from 2015. But this this aged really well. One of the things, like the montages in it, we don't really talk about, but like it's tough to follow up. Like a Rocky movie, they had the best. I mean, when you think of a, a montage, you think of Rocky. How do you compare with that? And I think that they executed him briefly because like they'll just start in the gym and it's just doing jump cuts like from like in the middle of a scene and then they'll start adding the 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 music and then they will start like rapid firing the editing. And it's just like, oh, this works perfectly. So it's just like they build it up so subtly into like this burst of energy. Yeah, it is pretty badass. Yeah. What do you think for your quote? I have two, but they're comedic for my all time quotes. They're just they're Rocky cooking. <laughs> the one that resonates the most is that I'm not a mistake, but I think I think my favorite line is uh, you better not walk around naked either. <laughs> it's a good one. He's the best. He's the best. I have two. One's a throwaway line and one is just so indicative of the time and generation. The first one was Rocky when he's getting his chemo and they're in the room. And he's like, just show me what you got. And he starts shadow boxing. He's like, yeah, that's right. All right, okay. And he gets down, he's doing push-ups, and he just throws it away. And it's a muttered kind of like, yeah, I, I used to do them one-handed. But I wasn't going to say anything. but uh. and, and you just see him go, oh, and he starts trying to do them one-handed. And the other one was when he's unloading the truck. He's trying to get him to train him and everything. And he walks away and he gives him back. The piece of paper that Rocky had written on the training schedule. Oh yes, <laughs> and Adonis had taken a picture of it, and he gave him the paperback. Walks away, and he's like, "Hey, don't you need this?" It's like, "No, no, I got it." And he holds up the phone. He's like, "What if you lose it or drop it?" He's like, "It's in the cloud," and he just leaves. <laughs> Stallone just gives like a look up, so sweet and innocent. He just yells, "What cloud?" <laughs> I love it so. Hey, what cloud? <laughs> It's so <laughs> genuine and sweet. Yeah. There's another line that he has that I forgot that you just remind me of. And it's when he takes him from um, the, the gym to the Philly, like Mickey's gym to the Philly gym. And there's the cyclist, the motorcycles outside. And mm -hmm. he's like, did yeah. you ever have a motorcycle? <laughs> Rocky goes, 
I used to have a, a Harley, but I fell off one, so I just started decided to use my feet. <laughs> it's just like it's just his delivery of it's so good. It's perfect. His yeah. delivery is just aces, and he's been playing this character since the seventies, so it yeah. makes sense. But yeah, he takes it really seriously, and it's a really good time to just mention that that motorcycle scene where everybody kicks onto the dirt bikes, the motorcycles yeah. and the quads, and they start ripping through Philly. Like that's this character is like becoming his own man. That's his yeah. version of the steps. Yes. He's not going to do the steps. This is what he does. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I love that they take the original Rocky composition music and they make it new again. Cause they like, they put some hip hop behind it, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It gets you pumped up. That definitely yeah. fired me up. Who's your favorite supporting character? We don't have a ton of supporting characters in this. Bianca, I'm a huge, like, I think Tess Thompson is, like, so underrated as an actress. I think she's phenomenal. I've been a fan of her since she was on Veronica Mars, like, many moons ago. And she's just really good in everything she does. She was also in Dear White People. It's another great movie that we uh, should revisit at some point. And... There's that scene when he gets into the fight with the headliner and they have broken up and he goes to apologize to her. And I love that she doesn't just give in. Like, I love that that character is just like, I'm sorry that you're going through something bad, but she holds him accountable and she like shuts the door and she's on the inside. And then she takes her hearing aids out when he's like Mm -hmm. trying to like cry out to her. And it's just like, she plays that scene beautifully. I think that's a really, uh, it's a tough thing to learn about masculinity and what it means to be a man is to just let women or people you love in general go for a period of time and to trust that whatever that period of time will be, will be, and to not force to beat yourself to be heard. Because at a different time in my life, I would have been like, oh, she's evil for taking those out. Right. And now yeah. kind of like, yeah, that's a boundary she set that he's going to have to deal with. And that's okay. And it was, <laughs> you see your own growth trajectory as a human, if you're lucky enough to have one, when you watch these films at different points in your life. For sure. All right. So how about you? Who's the supporting character? Supporting character, it's easy, man. It's just Rocky. Yeah. It's just Rocky. I just love the guy. I love being with him. I love everything he does in these films and easy one. But what yeah. about Dark Horse performance? The one thing I will say that since we're it's kind of closely related to the last conversation is I loved how, even though this is a sequel and Adrian and Polly aren't in it, I love that they have kept their spirit and Mickey too. Like they, you, they've kept those characters like in spirit in the film. Like they have like, they talk about them, they're characters that you miss. And I love that they still have a presence in the film, even like five installments or four installments after they've uh, been a part of it. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think for Dark Horse? Oh, God. Who do you got for Dark Horse? Let's hear you. I'm Wood Harris. I just think like, (laughs) I wanted more. You gave me Avon Barksdale and you just took him away like that. Like imagine Uh, the uproar in the community if it was Idris, if we'd gone down that that other road. Idris Elba comes in and, and you've got Stringer Bell and then you just take him away. It's like, well, you just did the same thing to me with Wood Harris. And I do need to rewatch the second one now just so I can get my fill. But what he does in a small window, that guy's great. I just love him. Yeah. And then for me, I, w- I would probably say Felicia Rashad, even though she feels like it's so funny because I, I, it was only this time watching it that I realized that she probably has four minutes of screen time. <laughs> like yeah. she is barely in it, but like she is present. And I love like her 
I love her cheering on him on the end, like via television. She's just like, you almost gave me a heart attack, but I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah. And I think the only argument for Dark Horse for her would be that the amount of screen time she has, yeah. because otherwise it's Felicia Richard. Right. That's not a Dark Horse. That's Felicia right. Richard. Yeah. But, and it's interesting because I totally forgot that she only played the character in the first one. She was recast in, I don't know if she was recast or decided not to be in the second Rocky, but she wasn't in the second Rocky movie. Big mistake. Yeah. So huge. Huge. <laughs> title fight, Creed. I mean, there's nothing to fight about. It's, it's great. Fight. Yeah. It's the title. Yeah, there's you can't beat it. Else. Yeah. Uh, it, what a great name. What a badass name. For sure. Great name for a movie, terrible name for a band. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Don't get me down the Christian rock road this late in the pod. <laughs> Donna and Diane. Uh, my mother would love it. Donna would love it. She'd give it two yeah. thumbs up. Yeah, my mom would too. She's she's a big fan of these kinds of stories. Uh, boxing, not her favorite thing in the world, but yeah, the, the heart that exists in this and the entertainment value she's in. Yeah, and it's Stallone. Stallone's, yeah, it's timeless for the ages. Best person to watch with. I hadn't thought about this before. Who would it be for you? I'm going Frankie Tarantino. We're going Frank T for this. He's one of my best friends I grew up with. He's kind of like the, the little Rocky. If he got into boxing, he was a wrestler. He'd be the Italian stallion. And he just would be a great sit down and watch Creed with this guy. Yeah. He'd appreciate the the nuances and the love behind it and the storytelling, but just the boxing sequences and everything. It'd be a fun fun thing to sit down and watch with Frank. Uh, that's a good one. I, I'm going to say my brother, Nicholas, just because I remember watching the Rocky movies with him and like us like beating the crap out of each other in, in like our basement after watching them and having like title fights. Um, and like, he's still somebody that I enjoy watching uh, movies with, but I think for that particular reason, it would be a good watch with him. Nice. And Crispin Glover, Tilda Swinton in the film creed i would actually love to see tilda swinton as graham mctavish who is uh conlin's manager i would be very you took mine you took mine <laughs> it's 100 percent the answer it's 100 percent correct <laughs> tilda swinton as pretty ricky conlin's manager she would be more terrifying and the guy's pretty scary yeah that's hilarious that that's your... right <laughs> this is why we have this category that's like ooh. yeah Elda. And that also explains why we're we're hosting this together. That's perfect. All right. So we did it, man. We got through Creed. Yeah. It's exciting. Uh Ryan Kugler is it's his second feature film worth calling out. His first one was Fruitvale Station, which is a movie I encourage everyone to watch. Um, it's a movie that will infuriate you, but it's definitely a movie that's worth watching and uh captures a a moment in time that was a huge precursor to the Black Lives Matter movement. And also another fantastic Michael B. Jordan performance. Yes. That's yeah. the lead. Yeah, that will piss you off in a way that it needs to. I was furious after that movie. It's just very good watch. Yeah. But I'm excited to see his like future. I think he's a solid filmmaker. I think, I mean, what he did with Black Panther and Wakanda Forever, I think is just I'm very intrigued to see like what he does in his career because it's going to be exciting. That'll do it for Creed, everybody. Come back next week where drum roll my pick for the last film from me for black history month menace to society will be broken down next week enjoy thanks for listening jonathan you're the man thank you all